mean, this is ridiculous that they have uh, that they have people like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio Cortez who who are yes uh, who are proud socialists. After socialists killed almost 200 million people all over the world during the last century, there are some still socialists. Uh, and many of them in the United States who are proud of this, who are proud to be socialists. I'm Kevin Nicholson, and this is the Right Idea Podcast. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, I think Stalin put it very, in a very explicit way. He said that, that to build a new society, we need to erase history. Uh, you need to erase history. You need to, to make history the most unattractive thing, the history of... Uh, uh, right now, the, these people want to present our history as a, as a history of failure, the history of, of oppression, history of crimes, which is not true. Right. I mean, there definitely were crimes and were oppressions and everything else, but that's not our history. I mean, this is not the whole of our history. It's also history of great discoveries, history of great innovations, history of pioneers, history of building the best society in the world right no i yes and you you alluded to this already but the um as you see literally mobs of people tearing down statues whether they be to uh ulysses s grant or abraham lincoln or to uh frederick, frederick Douglass. um these are people who move the ball forward in human human society in a way that not many others have uh before them in terms of like truly spreading freedom to other people in different ways and to see that undermined very consciously, and to your point, to try to discredit the history of the country in a very purposeful way is, I mean, it's alarming. I'm Kevin Nicholson, volunteer president and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. Thanks for joining us for season two of the Right Idea podcast. This season, we're having conversations with a series of great Americans to celebrate our country, to talk about how best to address the challenges we face, and to talk about the path forward. We're facing a moment when our nation is struggling, we're all trying to navigate the health, economic, and social challenges presented by COVID-19. We're now in the home stretch of a 2020 presidential campaign where there are very clear and wide divides. And after the death of George Floyd, both peaceful protests and destructive riots have broken out across our country. From the depths of the depression to the midst of World War II, the American people have gotten through much worse, but this is a challenging time. Today, we hear radical cries to defund the police coming from politicians and from teachers unions. All as the future of our children's education hangs in the balance. As kids, parents, and educators are trying to navigate the real-world impacts of the debates over virtual and in-person learning, it's sometimes hard not to feel that a fair amount of the debate is being conducted with an eye on manipulating the 2020 presidential election. Despite the uncertainty and the often negative stories that dominate our screens and our feeds, there are positive stories in our communities, and there is a path forward together as a nation. To that end, I was honored to recently sit down with Professor Yuri Maltsev, a distinguished economist, a professor at Carthage College, and a former member of the senior economics team that worked on Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev's reform package. I think you'll enjoy hearing Yuri's perspective and the dose of reality he delivers regarding the true promise and the greatness of our nation. This is the Right Idea Podcast. Well, thanks everyone for joining us today on the Right Idea Podcast. I'm thrilled to have Yuri Maltsev joining us with us. He's a professor at Carthage, excuse me, Carthage College, uh, specializing in economics, um, and also, too, a former economic advisor to the government of Mikhail Gorbachev. And I think that'll be part of our fascinating conversation today. But Yuri, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, nice to be with you. Great. Well, hey, I, I have a couple questions I'd like to ask guests, and this can go any number of different directions after once we get going. But one of my first prompts I give to everybody, um, and I'm just really curious, especially given your life experience, what your thoughts are, but you obviously didn't always live in a country that enjoyed such extensive freedoms as the United States. And here at No Better Friend, we want to celebrate the things that make this country exceptional. And just real broad strokes to start with here, but what is your favorite part? about the United States of America, and in your eyes, what makes it exceptional? Well, I think it's freedom. Freedom, that's, uh, that's why it's a beacon, uh, uh, beacon of liberty for, for so many people all over the world. 
I think President Reagan was absolutely right, saying that this is a shining city on the top of the hill, and that's how we and that's how we looked at it while I was in, still in a bleak and gray Soviet Union. Uh, so that's what it is, yes. Uh, liberty and the rule of law also, which today, both liberty and the rule of law are under vicious attack. Well, and it's interesting you bring them up together because they are intrinsically connected, right? Liberty exactly. and the rule of law. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about that because as now, you know, as you see on the far left, attempts to break down both these things simultaneously. There's a reason that they're connected and that my freedom exists in part because I recognize your freedom and your property rights. Um, and if you don't have those two things in concert, this whole thing doesn't work. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I agree. The only thing I disagree is with it's not only extreme left, it's just left. I mean, even yes. the mainstream left, it's Democratic Party, they should rename themselves into Socialist Party of the United States because this is a misnomer. Uh, they are not democratic uh, at all. And democratic socialism is, is kind of a democratic gulag. I mean, this is ridiculous that they have uh, that they have people like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria um, uh, okay, uh, okay, Ocasio-Cortez mm -hmm. who, who are, yes, uh, who are proud socialists. After socialists killed almost 200 million people all over the world, during the last century, there are some still socialists, uh, and many of them in the United States, who are proud of this, who are proud to be socialists. Right. Well, I, it's funny. You bring a point. I talk to my kids about this a lot and say, you know, there is maybe never a point where you win the argument in politics because you just made the point of the hundreds of millions of people that have been killed or irreparably harmed by socialism, and here we are only a matter of decades behind, beyond the fall of the Soviet Union, and you have American politicians, and you named a couple in Sanders and Cortez, but there's many, many others, as you're alluding to, who are back to advocating for the same idea that didn't just fail economically, but actually killed people at, at a huge scale. And I think it's, you know, it really does bring up the point that this is a never-ending fight, that the minute you take your eye off the ball, and the minute you assume you've won the argument, as we might have assumed in you know the late 1980s, you really haven't, because someone will surface these bad ideas again and run with them. Exactly. Yes, it is. Yes, it's uh, it's it's just unbelievable that after all these murders, after all this exposure of socialism as a failed system, uh, after even this uh, the most recent example of Venezuela, which was a prosperous country south of our border and now completely destroyed by the same thugs as we have here and we've had in the soviet union uh and the, kind of there was a, a very sad russian saying that the only lesson of history is that it does not teach us anything right well I, so i i deal with russians in uh, in work um and uh, I tell you, the <laughs> Russians, and you certainly fit this mold, are eminently pragmatic people who have uh, had to, uh, not just themselves, but their previous generations and forebears, survive some very difficult things in life from the czars on through the revolution. And just, I mean, I'd love for you to talk about just the sense of kind of open-eyed pragmatism that is, in some cases, just cynicism too that uh russians have almost had to develop in response to the leadership they've dealt with i mean first would you agree with what i've said and then second if that's true how would you describe it well i would agree mostly with what you said uh, my favorite philosopher russian philosopher was peter chadayev and he lived in the beginning of the of the 19th century <laughs> and i think in 1828 he wrote that I am sitting at, uh, looking at the fireplace and drinking my vodka. And I am thinking, why the God, in his wisdom, created such an absurdity as Mother Russia? <laughs> and it occurred to me <laughs> that, that he did it to teach mankind some awful lesson all the time. But unfortunately, right. this lesson, I mean, it's a very sad kind of statement, but unfortunately, this lesson 
was not was not well taken and uh, and look what happened right. because the best people the best i mean russia was always a country under tsars and it was under it, it was a country of a great cultural achievements look at the at the writers look at the at the composers look at the music ballet and everything else and everything was destroyed the country was reduced to miserable rubble by all these socialists right it became right it became it became just un, unbelievable even putin recently said that russians are are very are very poor people living in a very rich country right. that means there's a lot of natural resources a lot of everything but people uh, 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 but people are, uh, were suffering and still suffering well and you you bring up some great points and i what i find fascinating too because you're, you're talking about the culture of russia whether tchaikovsky or, or any of the poets and like these amazing amazing contributions right to, to human literature uh -huh. um and that is stamped out largely. And it's interesting too, right? Because now as you see leftists in this country, whether again, to your point, not just not just extremists, but uh, center left, right? Trying to limit the use of language, trying to limit the use of expression, trying to stop people from using certain words or to redefine those words. Um, my, my argument is, and I'd be interested in your take, is that there's nothing new about this. This is actually what socialists and communists and in other realms, fascists have done throughout history is control language and use it to control thought. Is that correct? Right, right. Yeah, that's uh, that's what Orwell was saying. That new speak, new speak is changing the mind. New speak is this new invented language. Is political correct or even worse language that they're trying to impose on us right now, even in my college, and uh, and this is just absolutely. Uh, absolutely ridiculous. Confucius, who's not my hero, but he <laughs> used to say that uh, that when the words would lose their meaning, people would lose their liberty. Right. And I agree with that. Yes, because then you just if you if you think in in kind of a patterns give given to you, but your masters, because what socialism is is a slavery, and your slave masters who are trying to be slave masters now are telling you not only what to think, but how to think, in what kind of categories how to think, uh, in what kind of language, um, uh, 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 idioms even, uh, right. uh, think. Yeah, so that's that's what it is. It's manipulation of public mind. Yeah, it's there was a, a great, um, a great uh, American um, philosopher and sociologist, Bloom, he wrote Closing of American Mind in mm -hmm. 1956. And we see this, this, I would say, kind of part two of this happening that we have right now. They are trying to achieve this uh, or to finalize the closing of American mind, to right. close this great civilization based on liberty, based on great creativity and innovation of people, and to make it another Venezuela. Right. And it's just, and again, it's it's just shocking too, especially when, and, and this is interesting too, right? There's a there's an attempt on the left to simply say that America is so heavily flawed that it is not worth loving in in one way, shape, or form, and that's it seems to be a goal on the part of the left to get people of that mindset because once you have them there, and then you limit their thoughts and their ability to respond, as you've just said, um, ultimately you have power, and that's what. Socialists, leftists, again, fascists, monarchists, you name it. Uh, that is the goal is ultimately power, which in so many ways leads to, to wealth for them and obviously the destruction of their political uh, enemies. And I, again, it's just shocking to see this in a country where, um, you know, albeit imperfect, uh, so many hundreds of millions of people have experienced real freedom and also to the evolution of this country and the way that it's come to to not just spread freedom to all people in this in this nation, but to spread it elsewhere. Um, and to see that just marked over, to pretend that that never happened, is truly shocking, especially when you see it done by educators. And it, that's what the point I'm getting to here. You too are, you are an educator. Um, as you see what's happening, in, and not necessarily just your school, but 
higher education in general. Um, how concerned are you about the norms of American higher education and, and how higher education professionals are working to subvert the story of this country? Very much so, and not only kind of nationally, but even in my school. It's, uh, it's the schools, the higher education um, uh, centers, the universities and colleges, in many cases became just uh, brainwashing centers. Right. They do not teach much what is really needed to be taught, but they, uh, they undermine the culture. We have a movement, something called cancel culture. Yes. And cancel culture movement is just really they want to cancel the culture. And, uh, um, and Mr. Putin, in uh, the Russian president, he is not, he is not my favorite at all. Uh, uh, he is, uh, he probably doesn't like me. That's why I'm not, I don't go, because I, I wrote so many stuff, so much stuff about him, uh, that, uh, that I don't go to Russia, because if you don't like him, or especially if he doesn't like you, right. then your life expectancy drops like a rock. So I am kind of avoiding Russia in my international travel. Right. But what can I say that I'm still watching Russian television every day uh, just to keep up my, because I'm doing a lot of public speaking and I just want to be updated. And now it's amazing and it's very sad that now they're laughing at us saying that, that now the Democrats are accusing Republicans of all this Russian uh, kind of conspiracies like, uh, like I don't know, the, the Mueller, um, uh, Mueller investigation and, and, and a lot of other, lot of other hoaxes. And the, and the guy who, was, uh, who is, uh, was just a moderator, he said, this is funny. We don't need to interfere. They're just falling apart by themselves. Right. And this is very sad. And this is very sad that, that they are laughing at us that most of the world is so either amused or bemused by what is going on in the United States. When the when this monuments to Frederick Douglass, I can't believe it, are being thrown out, then then the, the Jesus Christ is being beheaded. This is uh, just, uh, I mean, Willis Grant, Abraham Lincoln. Right. It's, uh, it is, uh, it is uh, shameful. And I'm thinking that it's not, it's not President Xi of China or President Putin of Russia are our main enemies. All enemies are around us. No, absolutely. And well, you, you bring up a point that Lincoln actually made, right? Which is that America will never be defeated from abroad. If it is to fall, it will be from the threat that is posed inside our own nation. And, uh -huh. and, and that's exactly what you're referring to. And, and yes, uh -huh. you're correct. Those malevolent uh, influencers from outside the country absolutely exist. But at this moment, I am sure that you are 100% right, that they are watching and chuckling at this. Um in the sense that you have the Democrats suddenly figuring out the Red Scare about 70 years after the fact um, uh -huh. is very bizarre. And every <laughs> and I, well, and I was just say, I, when I talk to, I've talked to plenty of reporters and gotten plenty of questions about Russian influence and all the rest. And I've said before, the Russian government is a foreign government. It has its own motivations and has a pretty well storied history of of different forms of manipulation in, in foreign policy, and that's well documented and known. And if you think that that just began in the last four years, then the egg is on your face, not mine. Um, there's many reasons not to trust foreign governments, um, but the fact that at this moment this is being used as a political ploy for domestic purposes kind of just shows like the unseriousness of, in so many ways, not just the Democrats, but just the national media too, and the way that they report on this stuff and how they leave people just very uninformed about what's going on throughout the world. Exactly. Yes. Yes, exactly. Because, because all this, this, this left socialists that we have, um, they had, they hate, uh, uh Mr. Trump with such a fervor. Mm -hmm. It's just unbelievable. And I think they hate him mostly because he's a capitalist and a successful capitalist, the capitalist, who created a lot of beautiful things all over the world. I mean, look at uh, the Trump 
and the Trump building in, in Chicago, Trump Towers in, in New York, or I stayed in Trump Hotel in Las Vegas. It's a, it, is, it is just amazing what, uh, by how much they hate him. And they are eager to do whatever it is, to twist history, to, to I mean, to involve the foreign governments that they kind of created him because they don't believe that it was this, that us, the deplorables, so-called, uh, that the people elected him. Right. It's, uh, it's very sad. It's very sad. Because now, to tell the truth, whether you like Trump or not, there is no choice whom to vote for. Because you are voting either for civilization, you are voting either for normalcy, civil society, human rights, property rights, or you, or you are voting for a socialist mayhem. Right. And you, yeah, and you touched really on like this, and what really the divergence is between what we call the left and, and the right in America. And really what conservatism, I mean, it, it's more than this, right? But it is becoming more or less a defense of Western civilization, Western civilization being in many ways described by what you just said, a combination of uh, freedoms and property rights that come together to create an explosion of prosperity, unlike ever known before in humanity, uh, which again, you wouldn't think you'd have to defend um, the way that we must now defend it, but that is where we are today, where the left is arguing very, very adamantly to go back to, and actually this is a question, <laughs> I, I oftentimes try to describe our nation, and I start off by asking you about the exceptional nature of it, um, but we are truly the exception in history, and so much of what the argument you're hearing from the left and the media is, is to go back to ways uh, that existed before our country, right, with control over who can say what and how, uh, you being directed by your government as to what your potential is in life and what's allowed, and certainly that exists in the Soviet Union, but may talk a little bit about how at least if you agree, that this also existed in um, in feudal and monarchical societies, too. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, I think Stalin put it very, in a very explicit way. He said that, that to build a new society, we need to erase history. You need to erase history. You need to, to make history the most unattractive thing, the history of... Uh, uh, right now, the, these people want to present our history as a, as a history of failure, the history of, of oppression, history of crimes, which is not true. Right. I mean, there definitely were crimes and were oppressions and everything else. But that's not our history. I mean, this is not the whole of our history. It's also history of great discoveries, history of great innovations, history of pioneers, history of building the best society in the world. I mean, look, the whole world wants to move to the United States. I right. don't, I mean, all these people who hate us, they don't move anywhere. They, yeah, they don't right. move there. They, they, they have a chance to move to North Korea or or, right. or, or Laos or whatever else is the, the last kind of refuges for that. For that kind of people, yes, that's that's that is this is ridiculous. I had a, I had a, a, a kind of a mentor. Uh, I went to uh, when I worked for the Soviet Department of Labor a long, long time ago, and uh, like in nineteen, what was that, nineteen seventy seventy five or something? Yeah, nineteen seventy five. Then the Minister of Labor of Soviet Union, he. Uh, he took me with him as an advisor and as an interpreter to International Labor Conference in Geneva, Switzerland. So that was my first visit to the West. And he told me, he told me, he, uh, he was all the time drinking and whatever, and kind of like trying to, to teach me life. And he used to say that, he said, Yuri, the future is glorious. Today, the current day is filled with a great work and effort. It is past which is dark and unpredictable. And I was at that time thinking, what he's saying about? And now I realized, or, or later, I realized that he was talking about millions of people murdered by by uh, by socialists, right. by socialists. And uh, and today we have uh, we have revisionists of history. Who are trying to paint 
our history kind of in that dark colors to present it as 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 again as a history of lies and crimes which is not true because this country was built by so many so many people who were thriving under under the conditions of freedom and property rights without property rights there's no other rights right no i yes and you you've alluded to this already but the um as you see, literally mobs of people tearing down statues, whether they be to uh, Ulysses S. Grant or Abraham Lincoln or to uh, Frederick Douglass. Um, these are people who move the ball forward in human human society in a way that not many others have uh, before them in terms of like truly spreading freedom to other people in different ways. And to see that undermined very consciously and to your point, to try to discredit the history of the country in a very purposeful way is... I mean, it's alarming. And I guess one of the questions I would ask, and I know our, our, our listeners would like to hear too, is what do you think people in regular workaday situations can do to push back on that? Because you make the case this starts before higher education. It starts in high school. And likely it starts before that. And assuredly it does. What are some of the things that you think of um, uh, in terms of what people can do to help push back on that and make sure kids aren't getting the wrong history of this country? Well, my favorite economist is Ludwig von Mises, an Austrian economist, and he he wrote also like 50 years ago. He wrote um, a short essay: "Are we historians of decline?" In which he is saying, "Yes, we are. There's decline almost everywhere. Now this decline accelerated much, but his conclusion was: So what? We should fight for our freedom. We don't have any other way." To, to, to be free. Um, uh, and so we shouldn't admit that we are defeated. Sometimes it looks like, especially in education, but, uh, but I would say that we should, we should still fight. We should still fight for our freedoms. I defected from Soviet Union and, and I am too old to defect again. It's just, I should, uh, I mean, I, I see my, my kind of mission in Telling people truth about socialism, uh, truth how awful it is, because it doesn't have any incentives for people to do anything. That's why they kill people. Right. So these are the yeah, these are the the issues which I think we should be very well aware of. Uh, that uh, that if we will not fight, if we will not be involved in other in other unified school districts in the in the in the, in the, in the in school boards and. And if we would not be involved in what is being taught in higher education, uh, then we will lose it completely. Right. You you use stark language when you talk, and I was and you like to know this. I was in the Marine Corps for five years, so I have a tendency to use some pretty stark language myself, uh, and it gets me in trouble sometimes. Uh, but that's because you call it like you see it, and. I know when you spoke at the RPW uh, convention recently, people got all upset uh, because they felt like you were too blunt. But I think this is, here. here's my take, and I want to hear your reaction, is you are reacting directly to what you've seen. You've talked, and I, I, I talk about this too, the, the alternative is the death of hundreds of millions of people. The alternative is not we all just feel a little bit less happy. People die in these situations when... Um, megalomaniacs have an opportunity to take over countries and to run them as they see fit. Maybe just talk a bit about that because your sharing of stark language and the numbers of hundreds of millions of people dying, like that's purposeful. You're trying to tell people that the alternative is stark. Am I right? All right. Absolutely. Yes. And, and uh, I mean, when, when you, you have a choice between slavery and freedom, I think you should be blunt. I mean, hello, can you find a compromise between the two? Exactly yeah. right. Right. And that's, yeah, that's why I think that all of us should realize that there is no, there is no alternative. It's kind of like nobody can be a little bit pregnant. So nobody can be a little bit socialist. There are some people uh, in academia, especially, who, or, or Bernie Sanders, we're pointing at countries like Denmark or Sweden or Norway as socialist countries. No, they're not. Because what socialism is, according to Marx himself, it's abolition of private property. 
All these countries of Scandinavia, they're all based on private property. Moreover, they have even more economic freedom than we do. They have less regulations. They have very high taxes. But that's how they, their people decided that it should be. And that's their choice. But high taxes is not socialism. It's definitely not a free market, but, um, but, uh, but it's very far from being socialism that what the people here want to impose on us. So, um, so there is not a, not a single example of successful socialist society. It's, it's just unbelievable. Look, China. China was a, was a country where people were starving to death, when the people were killing their children because they couldn't feed them. And, uh, and today, China is prosperous. For what reason? Because they allowed private property. They allowed some economic freedom. And I would say that's not enough. And if they would allow more, they would be way more prosperous. Um, and, the, and, and, and in the United States, it looks like people are tired of freedom, some people, tired of freedom, tired of prosperity, and want to return us to, to some kind of subsistence society. Right, and you use the word compel, um, because that, in true socialism, your point being that, look, the Nordic countries may have higher taxes, they might have decided there's certain trade-offs that they're willing to make financially, um, and ultimately they're free to do that. Um, they have a ballot box, they can make their choice. But your argument is that in true socialism, which really does mean the, the destruction, well, the elimination of private property and the redistribution of it, uh, that is compelled upon people. That is not... Um, that is not done at the ballot box. That is done by force. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. And hopefully we have still still some way out of this disaster we're in through the through the ballot box. Right. I mean that's the the um, that's that's the hope we have. Because otherwise we would what we would face uh, the same disaster that happened in nineteen seventeen in Russia. Right. What? Or in 1947 in China, or in 1959 in Cuba. And look what happened with these countries after they did that. Right. And your argument on China is, is one that is really lost. I mean, it, it is not shared the way that it should be. You oftentimes hear American leftists kind of speaking uh, in glowing terms of the Chinese government's ability to uh, immediately dictate results. And they usually speak of that when it when it somehow favors, they like the idea of the one-child program because they believe it limits global population. And obviously, there's been catastrophic effects to the one-child population or um, uh, policy, but that's a different issue. The point is, that's where you see leftists having that amount of admiration to say, oh, the, the power of the Chinese government to just do what they want. Um, but in reality, to your point, when China has experienced success, it's because they have moved in the opposite direction, that they have at least made some attempt to give uh, property rights and power, or at least economic power to people, if not political. And then if they're still limiting themselves, they're limiting themselves by not giving more power to people and fully uh, vesting them with their, or, or acknowledging the rights that have been vested to them by God. Right, right. Yeah, I was in China just, what, uh, less than a year ago. And um, and what I can say about it that, and I met a lot of Chinese economists, and I had a wonderful conference in Mongolia, and uh, with many with many free-thinking people from China attending. That uh, that China is very unstable society. I mean, all this uh, all this the attacks on Hong Kong and doing all these kind of strange things internationally. It's kind of like a kinks of of the society which is very uh, which is very troubled because china is uh, is a society already of of a huge middle class of people who are respected at home who are respected at work mm -hmm. but they are discarded as nobodies in political marketplace right. and so these people these people will not tolerate it for too long in the Chinese government, the, the Communist Party, they know about it. And so that's why they want to suppress the dissent in Hong Kong or dissent anywhere else in China in this brutal way, uh, just because they're afraid for themselves. 
And that's and that's what I think that's what will happen in China uh, very soon. That many people would say this is enough. Right, and it's yes. And again, we'll hear uh, an explosion from the media of, oh, no one saw this coming. And I can't believe it. It's such a time of change. Where did this come from? Well, it, you know, this tends to be the evolution where people eventually figure out a way to throw off, uh, the, you know, the chains that have been put upon them. And um, and again, it draws into stark, you know, stark relief, the idea that leftists in our own country are advocating again, to control people and to not give them the freedoms, um, which all there's, you know, all people yearn for all across, uh, all across history and all across the world. Um, it's quite ironic to see it all playing out like this. Right. Uh, Glenn Beck, uh, maybe heard of, you know him, yeah. but uh, Glenn Beck, yeah, whom I know personally, he told me that, um, that uh, right now, a lot of people on the left, they hate people who came from Russia or from Cuba or from Vietnam or from China because that people are kind of considered to be born anti-communists. And I would say, yes, they are, because they saw the, the beast. They looked the beast in the eye. And that's no, no difference whether you are in, in China or Cuba or Kazakhstan or whatever other socialist country you can mention. And that's, and I think that these people, it's kind of like a vaccine to some extent. It's kind of like a tainted blood with this, with a lot of antibodies for 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 this disaster. And that's what uh, what I think our, our mission is to warn people about all these awful things that they think they can design, but they are out of control, and then the meat grinder goes in. Right. I want to talk to you about one of the entrees that I think the left puts out there for uh, to, to get people to warm to the idea of a combination of greater uh, government or governmental control and ultimately what they call Democrat socialism or socialism or whatever they call it on the day of. Uh, but it's the idea of, of universal health care. And Certainly, one of our pillars at um, No Better Friend is the need to put more market forces into healthcare, such as price transparency and consumer choice and rationality. Frankly, that's missing from our healthcare market, in my in my feeling. But I would like to hear your thoughts on. Well, I mean, there's there's a double-edged sword. Well, not a double-edged sword. There's two parts of this. One is the actual policy of the idea or concept of uh, governmental-run universal healthcare, and then on the other hand, there's uh, the politics of it and why people put that forward, given the size and the effect it has in the economy. Um, what are your yes. thoughts? I think that we, we <clears throat> I mentioned, I think, at the beginning of our talk, that what is socialism? It is abolition of private property. And healthcare industry in the United States is almost 25% of our gross domestic product. It's 18%, which is healthcare. And then we have um, we have pharmaceutical industry, we have an industry of medical devices, so it makes up up to, to one quarter of everything. If it will be nationalized by the government, so you'll have one fourth of the economy already taken over by socialists. Then also with them, um, with I mean, and the and the idea of of the left is that we spend too much. I mean, if you will listen to Mr. Obama's speeches when he was introducing the, the Obamacare in 2010, his point was that we just spent too much. Yes, if we spend too much, as an economist I can say, how you can save? How you can save this money? You can save them either by, either by denying care on the demand side or squeezing providers on the supply side right so you either should should not pay this much to our doctors and our nurses and our other medical personnel which are the best paid professionals in the world by the way and or we should deny care to people on for for this for that reason there is no other there is no third way 78 percent of all medical expenses would be labor, labor expenses 
It's not some kind of overhead of insurance companies or whatnot. And so this is uh, this is this is how it works. In the say Soviet Union, there was the first country with socialized medicine. And look what was happening when I left Soviet Union. Life expectancy was 57 for men and 66 for women. Mm-hmm. 36% of all hospitals did not have running water and 55% of hospitals did not have running water and or sewer system. And that was a country which was sending people to space, which was considered to be like the great uh, the great example of success by the liberal left in the United States. And, and it, the country which didn't care about its own citizens at all. So that was the, that was the case. They were spending, even at the end of Soviet socialism, they were spending $37 per year per person on medical services. We do spend right now about nine thousand dollars, and that's uh, and and if if not to spend it on medical services in the country, especially which is aging, to spend this on what? Right. And that's that's what we should keep in mind that if healthcare will be socialized, you will lose control over yourself over your own body. You would really become a, a slave because they would treat you as a herd. Well, and that's it. Well, you, you hit on a couple of really important things. One is your relationship to your body and to your health is intrinsic to uh, you as a human being in your, in your essential rights, so your right to life, quite literally. And when your government decides what access you'll have to critical health care because they decide that you don't fit a category that rates to have a certain procedure done, now that is a true, true change in your relationship with your government. And I think that's lost by a lot of Americans to understand that once, and, and look, I, I've worked at McKinsey, I've heard the healthcare uh, specialists and analysts at that firm that advise uh, many of the insurance providers and the governments and so on and so forth, uh, talking about you know who should get what and how. Um, you know, that again, once you consign those decisions to a government, now that relationship that you have with the government has fundamentally changed forever in so many exactly, ways. Exactly, yes. Yes. My old and very good friend, Walter Williams, he is a, he is a great African American economist. And I, and I was privileged to, to, um, to talk to, to people at the, at the um, round table discussions with him. And he was, and he used to say, who owns you? Who owns you? Do you own yourself? And if you own yourself, you're a free man. And if you don't, you're a slave. Somebody else owns you. And that was absolutely true. I mean, that's what actually um, John Locke in the 17th century already was saying something like that. Uh, the first property is property in yourself. And if this property is, uh, yes, and look what the government is doing. They're feeding us with all kind of chemicals that they think are good for us. It's not our choice. So we're getting nice and getting whatever it is uh, there for, uh, uh, for bones or for teeth. Or, um, and that's, uh, that's, that's kind of a hurt te- technology. That means that they consider us as, uh, as a cattle. Right. Well, and the other thing that you touched on, too, which I think is very important, right, is the language of the left. You talked about Barack Obama, of course, and yes, definitely. It's been one of his arguments that simply you can you can artificially, in many ways, you're artificially constricting demand by saying we will only pay so much for product X. We will disavow Uh the existence of a market and say that we think it's worth this. Well, and I think this is what you're saying. Then don't be surprised when you find out that supply uh, ends up being constricted. uh, at the same time, and that might mean supply, meaning less people go into practicing medicine, or it might mean that our, you know, pharmaceuticals spend less on R&D and therefore develop less uh, of the drugs that people would like to have in order to make their, their, their themselves more healthy by their own choice. But it's, it's that decision that the leftist thinks that, hey, I can just say I don't want to do, I, I want to pay X instead of Y, 
and magically it'll work out. And really the only way that can ever work out is if you start compelling production in one way, shape or form. Right, exactly, yes. So that's why for, in, in all these countries with socialized medicine, not only say Soviet Union, but look at Canada, look at the United Kingdom with National Health Service. They have very long wait lists. In Canada, they, about 150,000 people are dying every year on the wait list because this services are not available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, who is dying first? Because all of them, they need to make choices. And the choices would be in favor of younger people who are active taxpayers. And the people who are older people, they would be sacrificed first. And even today, if you will read this, uh, this uh, um, newspapers about this COVID, 19 about about the coronavirus you would see that some people are saying so what it's mostly older people or people with some chronic diseases who are dying first so why should we care and that's what socialized medicine leads to right yeah and it's most severe form it literally is people making decisions about who gets uh, life-saving health care and uh-huh. you know at a much less a severe threshold, but also just an indication of what you're talking about. I like to share with the audiences when I talk to them about socialized medicine, the example of the uh, National Health Service in the UK, which, as you know, is oftentimes held up as a model uh, by by those on the left in the United States. And the ironic thing being that every year the NHS ends up getting overrun by the flu. Uh, leave aside COVID and, and everything else that's happening. It's just a systematic every single year they end up short beds because they can't plan for what is a seasonal uptick in this, the regular flu. And this happens year after year after year. And it's more or less acknowledged in the British press is just, here we go again with the NHS. They can't keep up. But again, it shows that, you know, whether we're talking about like the efficiency of government, excuse me, government planners, um, or just the inability to replicate, you know, the, the simple response of a market to a recurring problem, uh, government healthcare really does not give people uh, the quality of care that they're seeking. Right. And look what's happening right now with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. United Kingdom is, is a champion in, in deaths of this virus. It's, uh, and they have the highest mortality rate in Europe and in the world, by the way. So, and that's something I wasn't even aware. Of. And it just goes to show that it gets back to some of the other uh, points that we were talking about earlier, the what is reported and what is not reported. And I can tell you as a political candidate, I, I've, I've lived this, right? Like as you watch the press and how they choose to or to not present things, when when in fact NHS is held up as a superior healthcare system, they're very loath to actually share the fact that there is underperformance or whether it's relating to COVID or anything else, they don't want to share that because it defeats a narrative at the end of the day. Exactly. But what is very, uh, I would say, what is very dangerous in uh, in having this system like that, that it's actually a system of almost no return because it is very difficult to come back to if you, if you try this socialist system and it doesn't work, it's almost impossible to get back because people already would not consider this as 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 what they need to save for. They would consider it as a, as a kind of a, a human right. right. And this is uh, yeah. And this is this is a system of no return. And when you are providing some stuff for free, then people would be very reluctant to return back to pay for it. Right. It's, but yes, when those when those costs right are not externalized people don't understand that it's actually uh-huh. massive over opportunity cost in, in following that path all right and they don't realize that they're still paying for that but that comes from the from their taxes not from the immediate pocket and and that's uh, that's what uh, most socialists are trying to do right. to, to hide the real costs right i wanted to ask this is a slightly different vein you alluded to it earlier when you talked about vladimir Putin, who obviously is uh, serves the purpose of many people as a boogeyman in one way, shape, or form, and, and that's not my 
saying that he is not uh, a problematic uh, person. Uh, it's just it's interesting to see how how and when he is positioned as problematic. For example, if Hillary Clinton shows up and presents him with an easy button and uh, says that she can't wait to make it easier to get along together, uh, that's not an issue to our press. But you know, it is an issue uh, that they can again kind of fabricate a an association during the 2016 campaign. I, the whole thing is very mind-boggling as you step back and watch it. But I am curious, your perspective, and whether it's just your own life or what you've seen or, or talking to friends in Russia or whatever the case might be, uh, how the Russian people feel about his leadership at this point and how he's cemented himself into uh, government. Well, as I uh, mentioned, uh, he's not my favorite, definitely, uh, <laughs> because he is, uh, he is uh, I wouldn't call him a dictator. He is kind of a thug on the top, and he was a, a KGB colonel, mm -hmm. and KGB is an institution which murdered anywhere from 40 to 60 million people in the Soviet Union, and he is a proud member of this KGB. And I was very upset when he was elected by relatively free elections in the year 2000. Uh, he got, I think, 68% of the vote. And they elected the person who uh, is a proud member of the KGB, which killed so many people. I wrote at that time a, an article which was published in, on many sites in Russia, uh, with a self-descriptive uh, title, Meat Voted for a Meat Grinder. And, uh, and that's, uh, uh, that's true. Can you imagine if in Germany a Gestapo officer would be elected anywhere, even a dog catcher in a remote village? That would be a national tragedy. But leaving that aside, what I can say that today, I, and I hate to say that, but today he is very popular in Russia. I think that now he doesn't need to rig elections, but he's still rigging elections because he just likes to do that. Some people <laughs> like like go fishing, and he's just <laughs> like to, to rig elections. And, I'm not and, laughing uh, at what's happening, but I, I get your point, yes. <laughs> yes, so, so quite recently they had this, uh, what, not even quite recently, that was just two weeks ago, they had a referendum uh, uh, about changing the constitution and they had the 37 articles they wanted to change and um, uh, and they were sold as a package so you don't vote for each of 37 you vote for all of them as a package and uh, <clears throat> and and I was thinking why in the world they and the, and the articles the new articles were like children should uh, should love their parents and parents should take care of children that that kind of BS, and then <laughs> and then I was thinking, why why would they do that? And then, sure enough, the 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 the, the article number twenty seven is saying that there is no time limit to be president of Russia. <laughs> so he hidden hidden his I remember his, 27. his desire right, and right. into into this thirty seven thirty seven articles, right. and. Um, and so, and why he's doing that? Because he understands that that he cannot he cannot live without this presidential detail, without his secret service. He would be either killed or put on put on trial immediately after he would step down as a as the leader of Kremlin. Okay. Having said all this, I would say that he created some kind of a semi-fascist economy and, and to some extent, society. Um, but from another hand, I would say that Russians never lived better than, than the, last, uh, the last 10 years. In a sense that, I mean, that even this, this very unfree society, it is so much better than Soviet socialism, which destroyed almost everything. Now there is no, for example, Yeltsin, the previous president of Russia, he was saying about the constitution, he said, it's much easier to change the constitution than to buy a gallon of milk in Moscow. <laughs> but now it's easy to do both. Right. In a sense that last year alone, 
Russians went overseas for vacations. That was never heard of before. Hmm. Now they had, when I lived in Russia, we had 1.5 cars per 100 households. Hmm. And that 1.5 cars mostly were government run cars, they were police cars and, and whatever they, else they had. Uh, today, it is already like 57. So it's a great change. Right. Almost everybody has a cell phone. And at that time, when I lived in Russia, then they had 18 phones per 100 households. Hmm. And so this is a this this is a great change and change for the better. And uh, many Russians, unfortunately, they do not attribute it to capitalism, which made it all happen. But they attribute it personally to Mr. Putin. And this is a, this is a wrong thing. And I think Putin is very very efficient politician, very effective politician, that he made it this this way. Right. And and so that's why he is. I hate to say that he's he's pretty popular. He is. His I think his goal is not to defeat or harm the United States. His goal is to stay where he is not to lose his job that's his major survival uh, kind of thing but to do that he is all the time he needs an enemy and he all the time is portraying us in all kind of strange colors and and uh, uh, but most people in the in russia today they know the truth because i mean because of internet because of everything else right. so you cannot yeah you cannot blindfold so many people for too long right well it's it's you know it's funny and i had this conversation with many russian nationals that i think on our end it gets back to something that you and i just talked about earlier which is this concept that you never win this argument that no matter how many times we prove that human freedom uh should prevail for any number of reasons because it actually makes for a better world it makes people more uh prosperous and so on that um, you still have to be ever vigilant in making that case because as soon as you turn your back, uh, the other side will be there in order to gain power for themselves and to, again, take rights away from people. And I think in America, uh, as the wall fell and as eventually the Soviet Union uh, came to pieces, there was just a sense of euphoria and we won and this is over and now the world will be a better place. I remember going to courses in college where Professors were talking about the end of history and that nothing interesting would happen again. And obviously, we weren't long far from uh, uh, the uh, the event of 9/11 at that point. But yet, um, I think Americans missed an opportunity. Not that it was, and I think you know this far better than I do. I don't think we could have marched into Russia and said, "This is the way you should run your your country." I don't think that would have gone well. But I think there were opportunities for us to have done a better job of recognizing how difficult it was going to be to transition a state-run economy to, exactly. right? And the amount of, I think what people miss, many Americans, is the billions of dollars in assets that were transferred from the government into an oligopoly. Um, and I think that's probably a place where the American government could have helped to actually make sure that a, a, an economy was transitioned of that size in a um, egalitarian manner and set the country up better to actually conduct capitalism. Right, absolutely. I think that was a misfortune that the, the, the collapse of Soviet Union coincided with the with Bill Clinton administration. Yes. And, uh, and that was pretty, pretty bad kind of for Russia as well, because he did everything to to make it to make it as as as, as bad as possible. Well, and it, you make a great point because if you think of what we were focused on in America in 1990, uh, let's say I, I'm not going to get this totally right, but 98 through 2000, um, we were focused on scandalous affairs and Monica Lewinsky and you know any one of a number of different things other than trying to set the future of the world up to actually be a better place to live and. Uh, there are costs to the leaders that we choose. And, um, you know, at the time, people were very satisfied. The tech bubble existed, and there's a, a feeling um, that, you know, whatever. Bill Clinton had plenty of uh, character flaws, but who cares? 
because the economy is okay today. But you look at the long-term ramifications of taking the eye off the ball and not being a forceful advocate for these American and Western principles that we're talking about. The costs don't necessarily come due the next week, but they can show up over decades um, as we're seeing today. Right, absolutely. That's why Ronald Reagan was uh, and is still a hero in Russia. And many people do revere him very much, him and Margaret Thatcher mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and uh, the Pope, the John Paul II, mm-hmm. uh, because they were just real giants, giants of thought, giants of the, the defenders of liberty. And that's what people were, were thinking of. And then with, with Bill Clinton, that's that's true. He would he would come and drink vodka with with Boris Yeltsin and and uh, make all kind of funny things. You can YouTube that and you will see how funny it was right. for them <laughs> for them right but, right, but not for the people, not right. for the people. So that's the. That's 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 very sad. And at that time, the same say New York Times or Washington Post, what they would write, they would write, oh, how awful that Russia is right now, strangled by the hand of Adam Smith. I remember that was an article in New York Times. That's the hand of Adam Smith didn't show up there. It's just unbelievable that you have a you have a fascist state corrupt. And you you uh, accuse free market capitalism, which was not not free, not market, and they were not capitalists. Right, that's stunning. I had actually never heard that that headline, but that it it again, it's in keeping with everything you and I have been talking about today, and the way that things are being manipulated in an attempt to to serve an agenda. And um, right, and then the, all this this ex communists. They they had this. There was a time of something called spontaneous privatization, which, if you can translate it in plain English, would be theft. Right. So that people they amassed a lot of a lot of wealth, and they prospered. They prospered, and they were manipulating government, Yeltsin's government, a lot. Then Putin, when Putin came, he didn't like the competition. Now he reigned them in. So now it's again the government top-heavy state. It's it's run by Putin by again by one person uh, because he surrounded himself with nobodies. I mean, it's right. just yeah. There is no vice president. There's that's I think that my political science test is that how to distinguish between dictatorship in a free society that in free society you always know who will be the second if god forbid something will happen to the first and in a in a in a in a society which is not free you don't know who is the second right who would know who was the second to stalin or to hitler or to saddam hussein or who is second to putin we we, we don't know Cool. And that's and that's I think it's a very good uh, litmus test on on what uh, what is what is happening. No, that's a great point because everyone of the leaders that you just listed um, would know that they put a mark even more so on their back if they were to identify uh, who uh, their right, second in command right. is. Right. Yes. Yes. Right. If they if that's and if Stalin would think that say Kirov, there was Sergei Kirov, he was once considered to be a great successor. Yes, sure enough, he found he he was he was murdered right away. Right, right. Because once you give the alternative and you allow the wheels to move politically, then uh, yes, a dictator is not long for this world. Um, uh-huh. If people see an alternative, right. We're getting close to the the one hour mark here. I did have a final question I wanted to ask you, and I'm respectful of your time. And I I will say that we are thrilled that you've been able to join us. Um, and this one is more kind of thinking to the future, and obviously 2020. Uh, you know, it's been a tumultuous year. There's been a lot of volatility. I, I, I know I'm talking to someone here who understands the scope of history and knows that there has been far worse years on the record than 2020. And, and while we might all groan about things that we're seeing, um, uh, as long as we don't lose our founding principles, as long as we stick to uh, the ideas that made this country what it is, we're not immediately in danger of tens of millions of people dying in the street, as we know has happened before in many other years in history. And I think it's an important perspective to keep, but it nonetheless, it, this has been a challenging year and 
My question for you is, as you look to the future, what are you most optimistic or hopeful about in our country? What, what do you think uh, excites you about the future? I think that's just the spirit of American people. Most people that I know of, um, these people are looking into the future to make it better for our children than we have it now for ourselves. And this is this, this American dream, uh, as much as the left, they mock it. Uh, the, 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 most of the people, I think they cherish this idea. And the idea of freedom, the idea of unlimited possibilities and opportunities for all of us, no matter what is our skin pigmentation or what we came from, that's the, again, Walter Williams, my, my old and, and, and very good friend, he used to say that, that what is great about America is that, that even if you know where this person came from, you never know where this person would end. Right. And this is, this is, I think, a great, great thing that many people in many countries in the world, even in many European countries, cannot say because they're kind of doomed to follow certain patterns and we don't have patterns we have we have freedom and freedom is 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 a is a gift of god that we should cherish we should cherish and those who give up freedom they would end up with no freedom and no prosperity no wealth no good standard of living that's what it is i think was uh, Benjamin Franklin, who said, those who will trade uncertainty into uh, the freedom into, uh, into certainty will get no certainty and no freedom. Right. And that's, and that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. And these are, these are, you know, this is the reason we do this podcast is to share this with people. I mean, obviously across Wisconsin, but the entire country to remind them that uh, yes, the challenges we face are real. Uh, yes, this is all worth fighting for, and it is unequivocally. And I can't thank you enough for today sharing, I think, what the alternatives are and, and how serious they are. And this stuff doesn't just come from storybooks. It's real, and it happened in history, and not that long ago. And if we're not careful, we are, we are doomed to repeat the uh, mistakes of the, the past, and we can't. We can't afford it. So, so well, thank, thank you. thank you for your good work, right? Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thank you for joining us today on the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, Luminary, or wherever you listen to podcasts.